and I'm Monty Belmonte. I couldn't hear you there for a second, Khalees. Khalees is still remote, trying to play it safe. Yes, because you do in the middle of a pandemic when the pandemic is still happening and happening to you. Yes, <laughs> but no. So I'm safe here at the studios, and Khalees is like a five-minute walk away, but a world away when it comes to germs. Let's true. take two. <laughs> Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I am still Khalees Smith. And I'm still style. Monty Belmonte. It's Talk Like a Pirate Day, and I'm going to commandeer this whole show and talk like... No, I'm not going to, but... Well, commandeering is a pirate action anyway. So totally. I think yeah. you're on it. I thought about taking our whole script and translating it using a pirate translator into Talk Like a Pirate Day, but I decided not to at the last second. No one actually needs to translate into pirate. It's no. easy enough to do on yeah. your own. Maybe later in the show I'll tell you my favorite pirate joke for Talk Like a Pirate Day, but... Later in the show, it involves R's and C's. No, it doesn't. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, a little teaser. Later in the show, though, we <laughs> will hear about the Ashfield Film Festival, which returns this weekend. And we'll talk with one of the festival founders, who happens to be the film editor behind movies like Back to the Future trilogy, Harry Karamidis. But first, so I'm Monty. I'm Monty. <laughs> and I'm Khalees. Hey, Khalees. <laughs> now I know how to pronounce your name. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like milkshakes, but a little closer to generally phonetically correct. <laughs> the Authors Guild Foundation is returning to the Berkshires this fall for the second annual WIT, Words, Ideas, and Thinkers Festival, September 21st through 23rd at Shakespeare & Company in Lenox. One of the presenters is Rita Dove. Rita Dove is the erstwhile poet laureate of the U.S. From 1993 to 1995, she served as poet laureate consultant in poetry to the Library of Congress. She is the first African-American to have been appointed since the position was created by an act of Congress in 1986 from the previous consultant in poetry position. Dove also received an appointment as special consultant in poetry for the Library of Congress's bicentennial year from 1999 to 2000. Dove is is the second African-American to receive the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1987. In 1996, she received the National Humanities Medal from President Bill Clinton, and in 2011, the National Medal of Arts from President Barack Obama, the only poet ever to receive both medals. She served as the Poet Laureate of Virginia from 2004 to 2006, and since 1989, she's been teaching at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and we are thrilled to welcome her to the 413 on Friday, September 22nd in Lenox for the Wit Festival. We are very excited to have you on our show today, Rita Dove, erstwhile poet laureate. I love the word erstwhile. It's a very poetic way to refer to somebody who was poet laureate, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to be here. I agree. It's a wonderful word. <laughs> Never got to ask before we started, are you willing to read a couple of pieces for us? Well, you know, the thing about poetry is they're like children. You just don't favor one over the other. But when I think about this idea of changing the narrative and what we can do, I really think of, a, of an older poem called Dawn Revisited. And it's a note, I think, of hope, but also a challenge for all of you. I'll read you that poem first, and then we'll see where it goes. Dawn Revisited. Imagine you wake up with a second chance. The blue jay hawks his pretty wares and the oak still stands spreading glorious shade. If you don't look back, the future never happened. How good to rise in sunlight in the prodigal smell of biscuits, eggs and sausage on the grill. The whole sky is yours to write on, blown open to a blank page. Come on, shake a leg. You'll never know who's down there 
frying those eggs if you don't get up and see. Amazing. That is Pulitzer Prize winner, erstwhile poet laureate, <laughs> Rita Dove, who's coming to Lenox for the Wit Festival, where the idea very much is changing the narrative. Something I'm pretty sure just happened of this past summer. Was that when the New York Times sort of exploded out your American Smooth poem in, a, in an interactive way? I, I loved going through that. I know it, it kind of yes. plays into what your mission was as poet laureate. Some people think poetry is unattainable. If you think that, I can't urge you strongly enough to go to the New York Times and read this American Smooth poem, and it takes you on an interactive guided tour through the poem and the rhythms of the poem in a way that's very wonderful and accessible and dives deep into how incredible a poet you are. What was that like as an experience for you seeing a poem made interactive on the internet through the New York Times portal that way? It was fantastic. I mean, Dwight Garner did that piece and I knew that they had asked for photographs and I had no idea what they were going to be doing with it. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it is true. According to my mission, I really felt like, well, let's see what happens and see what they do with home. And I couldn't have been more ecstatic in a way, not just because it was my poem, but because of the way in which, as you said, Monty, it's done in an interactive way, which will really reduce anyone's anxiety about poetry. Because anything that you approach, if you think you're going to fail, you've already set an incredible weight on your back. Mm. Uh, you, you just, you go with the flow, you figure it out. You have no fear and you get a little further. I think that that breath, that opening up the space for more people to think that poetry can be for them is one of the beautiful things that happened with your curation of Penguin's 20th Century Collection. The the types of poems and the types of poets that were in there was a really important thing for American narrative. What were some of the difficulties you encountered in just making and making anthologies like that? Because that's not the only one that you've done. <laughs> Well, you know, the, the, the biggest problem was something much more technical and business-like. Mm. Uh, as one of my mentors had said, it was Pobiz. And that is dealing with permissions and permissions rights. And you get involved with lawyers and all this kind of stuff. There were people that I could not include because of those problems, which broke my heart over and over again. But once I realized I was going to be the sole editor of this anthology, I thought, well, this is not an anthology, which give you great background detail. And I said, what did these poems and these poets mean at the moment in which those poems are written, in which they appeared? How did an ordinary human being confront that poem and relate it to themselves during that point in time in the century? And I thought, if I could get that sense, then maybe I can get a sense of how the 20th century was perceived and brought forth by its poets. So that was my guiding principle. I mean, besides the fact that it it was just wonderful to dive into all that poetry. To make those choices was sometimes very, very heartrending. <laughs> And words are, of course, what you're all about. And there'll be a panel discussion with you and your words at this Wit Festival on Friday. Playlist for the Apocalypse with Rita Dove and Andre Bernard. Tell us about Playlist for the Apocalypse and what that conversation is going to be about. First of all, Playlist for the Apocalypse is the title of my latest uh, book of poetry which came out in 2021. And I came up with that title and I remember my editor saying, ooh, that's a little bit of a downer. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> 
And I said, you can look at it a lot of ways, just as a playlist, a musical playlist can be uplifting and can soothe you and you're sad and all of that stuff. The, the, the poems are meant to accompany it. And I said, apocalypse? Well, you know, apocalypse, really, the word means revelations. It can also mean that you learn something so amazing that it can either destroy you or change you anew. And I thought that the pandemic, the ways in which our country and this world are barreling at the moment, that they are apocalyptic in both of those ways. Yeah. I turn and I look at the flood here and an earthquake there and volcanoes. Uh, my sister-in-law lives on Canary Island, so she was about like two miles from the volcano. And yes, you wonder if the earth is finally saying enough of you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I know that your talk for the WIT Festival is going to be about your latest collection, Playlist for the Apocalypse. There's a section of poems in it that I would love to hear more about the origin of, and it's the, the Spring Cricket series. It starts with this one quote from a, a five-year-old that says, nobody loves me but the spring cricket. And then the next series of poems are all about interaction of music with the self and how that puts one into a sense of place and just this string of loneliness through the whole thing, too. I love that segment, that section in particular. Was this initially a series of chapbooks? And then and then we can talk about Spring Cricket more because I love it so much. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I... Well, let's start with the spring cricket, because I think in a certain way, the spring cricket started this book. Oh. Um, the the five-year-old was my daughter when she was five. She is now a professor and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and I, I, so great. But she had a happy childhood, I think, and she says she did. But I remember her walking around the house saying, nobody loves me but the spring cricket. And mm. then, of course, refusing to say anything about who the spring cricket was or not. I mean, I, I recognize that that is a, a power play uh, for a toddler. <laughs> but at the same <laughs> At the same time, there was something about it, this idea that there is some creature who is at times considered a good luck charm, but at times just a nuisance who is invisible, but you can hear that that creature is your only soulmate. And I, and I felt that that was some kind of a, a line between the parts of us that we can't really touch or articulate or explain to anyone and the soul of the world in a way. That started the spring cricket poem. So I decided, no, okay, let's be the spring cricket and let's talk back to this humanity. And and I think you're right, because they're very, they're, there's a loneliness in them, even though sometimes they're, they're quite funny and this cricket is pretty sassy. But, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but, but, but then that started the, the idea of, of speaking out to the world, because when I, when I write a poem and I'm really working on it, I feel an utter, I, I won't say loneliness, but just a feeling of being solitary. It's not an unhappy feeling. It's just the naked soul. So when I'm writing, that is at that moment, I'm not thinking about exactly who's going to hear this, but I am speaking out into the void. Now, that feeling then began to radiate with all the other poems. And in a few of the poems, there are several sections in the book uh, that, that almost seem like, like chapbooks because there's a section dealing with I guess you could say the meaning of the word 
or the, the echoes of the word ghetto all the way from its inception in 1516 in, in Venice. That was started by an invitation by, by the city of Venice to come and to actually think about the word ghetto, which then radiated out, of course, into Black Lives Matter. And suddenly I saw all the interconnectedness of supposedly random events that touch us deeply. That was one of the things that kept pinging in this book. And so when I began to put it together as a book that happened during the pandemic, when I think all of us were suddenly forced to think about where we fit in the world. We were forced to really sit and contemplate something that, you know, I think with all of the media jazz, I guess you could say that that goes on in the world, we can easily distract ourselves from. So that's a quality of the book as well. Those glory days when the world was almost... Up next, more with Rita Dove, where we will continue to be in awe of her awesome. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. We're speaking with Rita Dove, who is the Pulitzer Prize winner, the erstwhile poet laureate of the United States of America during the Clinton administration. And I uh, I remember that era, and it, it felt like a renaissance for me. Maybe that's just because it was a coming-of-age period for me when it came to the spoken word and to poetry. And yet I always hope that the poet laureate is sort of like the soothsayer in Julius Caesar speaking truth to power using poetry. Did you feel that that was part of your responsibility, that the poetry that you were creating or curating was there to help in some ways admonish and guide the most powerful office in the in the world, really? You know, I, I do think that the, well, the poet is traditionally the spokesperson for the tribe. They reported on the news. They were, in a certain way, journalist and soothsayer all at all at once. Mm. And rather than make that sound very magical and all of that, I would simply say that any artist looks very, very intently at the world around them and tries to be honest about what they see. Now, what a poet does that perhaps uh, you know, it's different than a, a novelist or a journalist, is that they, I think a poet uses the words in such a way that you can feel the silent emotions, the things that can't be articulated, that they kind of well up. That's an immensely powerful sensation when you read something that moves you, uh, which is why the media and the words are the first thing that any dictator wants to eliminate mm -hmm. because it, it makes you very strong. I felt that at that point in, in the United States history in the 90s and when that there was an openness, there was a willingness to let's go and see what happens. And in fact, when I became poet laureate, I simply wrote a letter to President Clinton. I didn't know him, but I wrote him a letter and said, you know, do something for the arts. Arts and Humanities Month is October. Let's, you know, maybe we should do something. And to my utter surprise, he wrote back. Hmm. I said, sure. So this, <laughs> I can't imagine all that happening <laughs> now. But You know what's sad? Uh, Neither can I. Yeah. <laughs> 
Maybe right now, but maybe not in a year from now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Keep those fingers crossed, folks. We're speaking with Rita Dove, who was the poet laureate in that rose-colored glasses and the benefit of hindsight 2020, I don't know, period of history there in the, the Clinton administration. Hey. I, I know, Rita Dove, that you very nearly were going to be a professional musician. You play the cello and other instruments. Your poetry is so musical. One of the things I learned about that exploded version of American Smooth that I mentioned before from the New York Times, where they really break down the rhythmic structure that you're using in the poem and how it relates to different styles of dance. And at the same time, your career in poetry parallels the 50 years of hip hop. I'm wondering if as a musician and as somebody who works with words, if you think that hip hop and rap has helped to expand access to things like poetry that people feel like can be a barrier to them, or is it just so totally different that it shouldn't even be mentioned in the same breath? Funny that you say this because there's a hip hop section of Spring Cricket. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. And, you know, Kendrick Lamar wins uh, the Nobel Prize in literature. So this genre has come a long way. Yes, it has. It really has. And um, I, it's a difficult question to answer because I think that there are places where obviously hip hop and poetry are joined at the hip you know, (laughs) and uh, and then there are places where they are absolutely different. One of the major differences, of course, is is a difference between any kind of music and any kind of literature, and that is that hip-hop is performed, Mm -hmm. and poetry does not necessarily have to be performed. Uh, When you hear something or you see a play or you uh, listen to a symphony or something like that, you willingly, in a certain way, give up a certain thought process. You give up a certain sense of making sense of words. Even with spoken word, you give that up. Mm-hmm. You say, I'm going to let these words just kind of roll over me. And then you, you get the sense, but it's also that rhythm that goes. And, and that is the extreme of melding music with poetry. So... I would say, in the same way I've said before about the spoken word, the spoken word has the stage in it, always the stage, the idea of performing it, hip-hop as well. And I think that what I'm trying to do with a lot of my poetry is to have it exist on the page, but at the same time give the reader the opportunity to make their own internal stage. Mm. That's a different thought process than let it letting it pour over you in in hip-hop. And yet they emerge from that same belief that the word itself, that the urge that human beings have to communicate and to develop a a language is important in more ways than just its denotative meaning. It It has layers, it has colors, it has sound. Do you think that that maybe is the divide, that stage that some people are able to internalize, divides the poets that are able to read their work and the poets that aren't because not everybody reads their work well? Yeah, it's, it's you know, it, it, it may be a division point, but it shouldn't be considered a, a way of ranking them. Oh, you know, no, not in at other all. Words, yeah, some amazing, beautiful and wonderful poets cannot read their work well. And there are poets also who their work is not, I don't want to say they're not paying attention, but what I'm saying, their main attention goes toward the visual or goes toward the way of, of dismantling language. Because uh, what they're trying to do is call attention to the fact that we just throw words around. We don't think about how they're put together. So there are all sorts of, of ways in which to do that. I'd argue that hip hop does the same kind of thing, but in its own way. And, and my only argument with hip hop, it's not an argument really. The thing I'd like people to consider is that when 
you're writing something down that you want other people to communicate with, at some point you make a decision whether you're going to appeal to their musical sense over other considerations and at what level that's going to, to happen. In other words, don't assume that, oh, just because I feel really good and, you know, this sounds really good, that it is good. <laughs> <laughs> might be good for the music, but it might not be the realm of poetry. Right, and, yeah. You know, in response to what you were saying about that, there's a lot of poems, one of which Khalise, you know, showed me right before we had here called Mirror, where if you were to read it out loud, you wouldn't get the stunning visuals that you've created using those words written on a page. There's a poem you have called Roomba, where the way that it is designed on the page is like two dancers dancing with one another. So it's beautiful that you, I mean, this is an audio-only medium that we live in right now, so unfortunately we can't show you those things. <laughs> Nevertheless, poetry exists in all of these planes. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, Mirror is a poem I can never read aloud. Yeah. It, yeah. Is, it resists, it says, no, that's not where I'm at. You know, you have to look at me like a mirror. <laughs> The irony. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I was doing a little bit of research before this so that I could know more of what I was talking about rather than just going, I love your work. I love your work. I love your work. <laughs> and one thing I gained from looking at a, across a wide spectrum of things is the way that you handle criticism is amazing. It's kind of a master class. <laughs> Do you have tips for people getting better at taking criticism of all types? Are there ways to better handle your critics? Well, you know, <laughs> I feel like the, the main thing you always have to consider is, are you centered in your life and are you happy with that center even if things are going poorly is this the way you want to live your life and once you find that center then criticism can be dealt with without you know harming you irreparably it's all well and good to say criticism is not personal it's not directed toward you even when it is personal mm. it's not you you know it's not what's happening to you what is important to you is to write the next poem or to do the next thing and know that inside of yourself that you did the best you could and, and to feel excited about it. That's what I go back to every time there's critique. Now I will take, I will read critique and look at it carefully. And of course, the first moment I'm like, ah, you know, arrows <laughs> in the heart and all of that. And, and then you say, okay, take a breath, walk away from it, Come back later and see if there's anything in there that makes me wince. And if it makes me wince, and that's different than just pain. Mm. If it makes me wince, then I say, huh, maybe they're saying something that I need to hear. Maybe it's something that I'm trying to hide from myself. So so that's, the I think, the, <laughs> the only kind of advice I can give. You know, my husband and I have this, this routine. We do look at each other's work, and he can be quite a severe critic. He's a novelist, so he goes at it from that narrative sense. And our main rule is that no matter what critique we have, give it 24 hours. Don't say anything to the other person. Don't try to defend yourself. 24 hours. And then you can come back. Mm. And it helps a lot. I'm going to take that one to heart. Right. <laughs> uh, Rita Dove, before we let you go, could we coax one more poem out of you, perhaps? Sure. Absolutely. I just don't know what. <laughs> That's the <laughs> magic of it. Suggest. I'm so excited. <laughs> well, let's see. Since we were talking of the spring cricket, let me do a spring cricket. 
Which one, Khalid? Oh, okay. Honestly, discourse on critics since we were just talking about criticism. It's almost too perfect. It's almost too perfect. The Spring Cricket's discourse on critics. Everybody's got a song they've got to sing. So they say. So they think. Everybody's got a pair of fat thighs they believe they can just crush together and crank out the golden tunes, ye old razzmatazz, and the opposition will drop like, no, I'm not going there. I'm going to sit here a while and watch the dew drop. It's letting go, so lurid a metaphor for failure, I can't help but take it out of circulation. Everybody's hungry. Everybody's hunkered in their hedges, hanging on. In the end, nothing's left to talk about but style. Rita Dove, the so erstwhile good. poet laureate of the United States from 1993 to 1995, Pulitzer Prize winner. She is coming to Lenox on Friday, September 22nd. 5 p.m. It's free. It's part of the Words and Ideas and Thinkers Festival WIT happening presented by the Authors Guild Foundation and it's at Shakespeare and Company in Lenox. This has been an absolute delight and honor for us both. Seriously. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Up next, the Ashfield Film Festival returns this weekend, and we'll talk with one of the festival's founders, film editor Harry Karamidis. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. <laughs> Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. This Friday and Saturday, September 22nd and 23rd in Ashfield's Town Hall, it is the 15th annual Ashfield Film Fest. And joining us is one of the festival founders and the Hollywood film editor beside such stone-cold classics as... Behind it, even. Yeah. Judge Dredd, (laughs) The Children of the Corn, and not one, not two, but all three of the Back to the Future movies, my friend Harry Karamidis. Thank you so much for joining us here. It's my pleasure to be here and visit with you guys. Thank you. Now, Harry, what brings a Hollywood film editor living in Los Angeles, working on all these top-tier Hollywood movies for decades, really, to the bucolic, I called it the Hill Valley town, <laughs> but it's really, that's a Back to the Future reference, yeah. just the hill town of, of Asheville. What brought you out this way? We were interested in uh, having more space. Los Angeles is crowded. Uh, very but not hard. as crowded as New York. Don't people leave New York and move to Los Angeles because allegedly there's more I space? I think so. And then they, they, they realize their mistake and they head for Ashfield. Oh, yeah. That, you know. <laughs> so we were just interested in having some land and not able to do that in California very readily with uh, the cost of land and the crowd- crowdedness. And you can't, in Los Angeles, the traffic's so bad you can't get there anymore without being in traffic. I would work, say, 10 miles from my house, and it would take me 45 minutes to get there. And every stoplight is two or three times before you could get through the intersection. And there were no shortcuts because the freeway blocked every street except the couple of major streets that went east and west. So it was near impossible to get anywhere. And I thought, oh, I would just work back and forth. I could go to Hollywood and I could do jobs. And I tried that a couple of times, and I found that 
not interested in leaving Asheville anymore, fellas. <laughs> this was too nice for me. Every time you're caught in traffic on 91 or you're like downtown Northampton and there's construction and you have to wait, remember the words of Harry Carmitas right there about yeah. how bad Los Angeles and most of the places are. Bask heard, in the glory of the fabulous 413's <laughs> yeah. lack of traffic. I, yeah, I well, mean, if, you heard, have, if you have a traffic jam here, it's about a minute and a half. Yeah. Khalees? Uh, it's been descri- the traffic in L.A. has been described as a full co- full contact sport. Yeah. So. <laughs> and we're from the Boston area. Yeah. Khalees is from Boston, and I grew oh, up really? like during the Big Dig era. So we know traffic. Oh, well, yeah. we, uh, we know the, the, the strange non-Euclidean puzzle that is Boston <laughs> yeah. streets. Uh, I've, I've been around the world in a lot of different countries and cultures, and Boston is the only place I ever couldn't find my way. <laughs> yeah, that tracks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> now, you came to Ashfield from Hollywood, and 15 years ago, because this is the 15th, right, anniversary of the Ashfield Film Festival, a film festival in this tiny hill town was born. How much of that had to do with the fact that Hollywood tycoon film editor Harry Karamidis is now in town? Well, I moved here 18 years ago this coming weekend, actually, is oh, the wow. anniversary. The, moved in on the fall festival weekend in Ashfield, and we had 11 inches of rain that day and flooded <laughs> the place out. Something's never changed. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so here we are this year again being flooded out. Anyway, uh, I was just wanting to be involved with the community, and I got a call from Tamson Merrill, who was on the Cultural Council, and said, I had this crazy idea. I thought maybe we could have a little film festival here in town. Are you? I know you're from Hollywood, and you know about movies. Would you like to come and help me do this? I said, sure, why not? Because I wanted to get involved in the community. That's how it got started, through the auspices of the Cultural Council in Ashfield. We put together a small uh, uh, situation where we had, I don't know, we must have had maybe 10 or 12 movies of people from the town. They were all from Ashfield at that time. And we put it on in a town hall, and we had maybe 75 or 80 people. And we thought, what a great success. Let's do this again. And so we made it an annual affair, and after two years, we were very successful, filling the town hall with 400 people. And uh, we broke away from the Cultural Council and and became our own entity. (laughs) And we, at times, have had as many as 600 people because we had the adjunct church across the street. I would start the show uh, in town hall where we were full with 400 and run across the street after that and start the show in, in the congregational <laughs> church for another 150 people. And we had, we had the same show, so it was playing about 10 minutes delayed. Yeah, you need to just get a volunteer. Volunteers are now a big part of this. I, you oh, have yeah. somebody to coordinate, to say, like, push the button at the same time. Was there no one to help you with this? <laughs> oh, yes, but I have to do my shtick at the beginning oh, of yeah, all the stuff. There's only know? one Harry. Yeah. <laughs> I put on my tuxedo, and everybody is dressed up to the nines, at least all the people on the committee. And we just put on a good show, and people come to have a lot of fun. <laughs> um. One of the things that's important about this festival is that you are showing movies that are are professional movies, and we'll talk about them in a second. But individuals create their own movies. Kids, grown-ups, people that are just playing with the idea of film submit to be part of the film festival, right? And that was always uh, a part of why why this festival was created. That's exactly right, and we we loved having the people from Ashfield being contributors to this process. Uh, We encouraged them. We did everything we could. We even at times held workshops to assist people in getting the uh, films made. And a lot of talk around town about, oh, I don't know how to do this. What can I do? And just tell people it's easy to do. You just give them a few encouraging words. Um, One of the interesting things was the, the ladies who run the Asheville hardware store 
they never ha- they don't even have a computer to this day and <laughs> they they never made a, a, a film at all and they got together with a local uh, filmmaker named Mary Pacierno and they made Mamma Mia which won the grand prize at that year's festival and it continues to be the town favorite because what well, if you remember the movie Mamma Mia, the whole town turns out and just marches through the little town and jumps into the lake. And we did all that with, with 80 or well, 90 women from Asheville. And it was a great, great show and just energized everybody. They have like a massive casting call in the middle of town. Like, hey, just come up, bring a bathing suit. We're going to go jump in the lake That's for film. He's exactly what I just said. Come, Everybody's <laughs> invited. There was no one specifically invited. Everyone was invited. Nice. No men, though. Only women. I love it. Nice. So much fun. It, we're speaking with Harry Karamidis, who is the Hollywood film editor who's moved to Ashfield and has been behind the Ashfield Film Festival for a decade and a half now. And you were just saying about how this, you know, these are lay people, people that run hardware stores, people that worked at Elmer's, the, you know, the restaurant and sort of general stores in the area, the pizza places. And they are making their own movies and submitting it to this film festival. You're a film editor. And the technology has changed so drastically over the years. I mean, I remember even in the 90s, I made one movie with, and Khalees, this will be shocking to you. It was a kung fu movie. Yeah, uh, I'm surprised. Uh, with a VHS like camcorder, like pushing pause and trying to do my own edits on a VHS tape. Now with iMovie, like, you know, your phone comes equipped with video editing software. Has that, uh, have you been surprised by how well People who don't do this professionally can edit movies and submit them to uh, to this type of Ashfield Film Festival? Absolutely See, right, yeah. yes. And some people are, are intimidated. They say, well, I don't know how to do anything. Well, I just say, "Just to, have you used your phone? Yes. Well, you just push that button on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and there it is. It's, it comes out as just make sure you slide that slider to video off of a photo and you can do it. And uh, people have done a lot of good, interesting things. One of my most proudest things about the film festival is that over the years, two things. We've accumulated about 175 movies that are all archived at our local library that tell about the town and the area of who the people were were that were old and gone who are the people that were important and did things what was the what was the political kerfuffle what was the happy people things that made people happy and laugh so that's all there the second thing that i'm very proud of is we've sent at least a half a dozen people off into the world now i'm not saying we did it but we gave the people a boost and a leg up into working in the professional fields of video and television so we're very very happy with that uh, situation it's remarkable because, it again, Ashfield, not a huge town. One of the requirements is there has to be some connection to Ashfield or the surrounding towns in these submissions. And then these people are now working professionally doing film because of it. That's correct. And I think the, the thing that helps them out is they probably would have made movies on their own and they played them for their friends and stuff. But to see it in front of an audience yeah. and get that accolade from hundreds of people is just magic. Mm. I, I don't know about you, but when I hear a lot of applause like that for things, I just get teary-eyed. I think that's <laughs> magic. Too. I love it. Your festival started as just one day, but now it's two, and you've got an entire day devoted to shorts. But I think like shorts are a really important part of film festivals, especially smaller film festivals. But you, your first day is like full-length. Features do... The townspeople come up with full-length features, too, or just shorts? You know, we have uh, several people from Asheville that are, are working in, the prof- in different professions in the film mm-hmm. industry, and they've brought 
things to the uh, festival. On, we call it a, our our Friday night is like our feature film night, and we bring various things. I I brought a documentary that I worked on called Kim Lu Sisters, uh, that was about three women, four women who were sisters, Chinese American sisters who were in vaudeville in uh, in the 40s, and then. Uh, Christopher Seward is also an, an editor, writer, and director, and he's brought s- two or think three of his films that he's worked on to the festival. Another person uh, who has moved out of Asheville and lives in Hollywood now brought the f- feature film that he and his wife made, and we had a, a friends and family preview of that one before anybody else got to see it. And then we this time it's not feature films. We have two shorter films for the Friday night. And the first night is called uh, At Alice, At Home with Alice Parker, about a woman who's pushing eight, going to be 98 years old this coming month. And she's a world-renowned choral director, composer, who's worked with um, all the big people. And everybody who is in choral music knows her name. She's, I'm not exaggerating when I say she's worldwide famous, but uh-huh. she is. She's a, she's a real dream. She actually had an interview back in... Uh, in the 2016 or so, on the National Public Radio. And it's amazing to listen to this woman. She would have been maybe 92 at that time. The, the sharpness, the attitude, the intelligence is, is so stunning. You, you'll have to believe, you couldn't believe it was coming from this person. And that part of that interview is included in this movie. So that'll be uh, illuminating. But then she's going to be there and leading a sing after it on Friday night in Asheville? Yes, her, her, her children are bringing her in there. She's going to lead a sing, We've, uh, one song. And <laughs> that's going to be so much fun. And she, she, people, people come from all over to hear what, you know, what her compositions and her arrangements of choral things. She does two a year. I'm not sure she's doing them th- anymore this year, maybe last year. One in, Ash- in Charlemont at the church and one in St. John the Divine in New York City. Wow. I mean, oh. this, this person is, is renowned. <laughs> Charlemont and New York City. Yes, imagine that. <laughs> what about the second documentary on Friday night? second documentary is called Ruth Stone's Vast Library of the Female Mind. Ties in with your previous segment. This is a, a woman who is a woman poet who has, has many, many awards, and I didn't write them down, so I can't relate them <laughs> to you. But it's going to be a movie about her, and I'm not sure the filmmaker was maybe going to make it. It wasn't positive. And we're, after the movie, we're going to have a panel discussion with three poets from our local area. Abbott Cutler is a local poet and used to be a teacher in uh, Adams. There's a university in, in uh, somewhere. Abbott and Amy Dransky is author of several award-winning books on poetry. And then Jan Freeman, who is included in this movie, uh, who started Paris Press, is uh, going to be on the panel. And we're going to discuss the movie, and we're going to discuss poetry and have some conversation with uh, the renowned Buzz. Uh, Buzz Eisenberg. Buzz Eisenberg Ho- as the moderator. Good friend of mine, mm-hmm. host of Talk the Talk on our uh, former alma mater, WHMP. One, He's an incredible civil liberties lawyer, which is what he should be <laughs> most famous for, perhaps, before <laughs> radio. Getting people out of Guantanamo Bay that don't deserve to be there. Right. That's one. Radio host, <laughs> a distant second. <laughs> Appreciator of poetry, third now. He's a huge appreciator of poetry. And Ruth Stone's Vast Library of the Female Mind is the name of the documentary. Some of the awards that Harry was alluding to, National Book Award for Poetry, the Wallace Stevens Award, the National Book Critics Circle Award, two Guggenheim Fellowships. So this is a big deal, a big deal poet, and it should be an excellent discussion with other poets on the Friday night of the Ashfield Film Festival. It's this Friday night. 
uh, the 22nd coming up. We'll talk more about what's going to go on the Saturday night, the short films that have been submitted by individuals. And we got to talk to Harry Karamidis about what <laughs> you're most famous for, which is Back to the Future, the film editor behind those films. It's not Judge Dredd? Okay. okay. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. I knew this song was coming, and yet still somehow caught me off guard. It gives me the chills. I love those <laughs> movies, the Back to the Future movies. And we're speaking with Ashfield resident and the film editor behind all three Back to the Future movies and one of the founders of the Ashfield Film Festival, which is this Friday and Saturday in Ashfield, Harry Karamidis. You are also the film editor of Judge Dredd, and Khalees loves Judge Dredd. So let's talk about Judge Dredd for a second <laughs> to satiate Khalees' nerd needs. Judge, unfortunately... Khalees, Judge Dredd for me was Judge Dreadful. No, no. I mean, that movie is not good. <laughs> My experience was dreadful on it. I appreciate that, but you, di- you did as well as you could with what you got. <laughs> uh, I didn't get much, I'll have to tell you that. Yeah, it, it shows. Yeah, there were, they, they brought in four editors trying to help it, and we never could make oh, much better. That's never a good sign. No, it is not. <laughs> I think people might not clearly understand what the role of a film editor is. I guess it makes sense theoretically, but what's the difference between what the director's vision is from film and then what the editor brings to a film? Do you bring your own separate vision? Do those visions have to merge? Who wins out in the end when it comes to this final cut, as they say? You, well, most directors don't get final cut. Yeah. Some, some directors do. Steven Spielberg and those kinds of Tarantino, those people. They get final cut. But when you're going for the job, you talk to the director. You see if you have a, some sympathy or other about how you deal with life and how you might deal with the project. And you would have read the script and you'd talk about possibilities of what's going to happen in the script and that kind of stuff. So you're already on some kind of common page. And then you work w- from there. And the director gives you raw material and you try to deliver his version. But that doesn't mean you just cut and paste things that you like you see on the script that says Joe says hello so you cut Joe says hello that's not it you have to <laughs> put together the pieces that make Joe says hello interesting to the audience and that's where your expertise as an editor comes in you get to choose you might have six choices of where Joe says hello comes on from different angles you might have four takes in each one of those six angles to choose from so you have to find the one that works for the next shot that's going to have just as many choices, mm. and the next shot that finally ends the, seer, the series of shots that make a scene. And, and then, e- then oh. each scene has to make a movie. <laughs> so there are always adjustments. It's constantly flowing, pushing and shoving. Have things changed in a major way since the beginning of your career in editing versus like now beyond just like celluloid versus digital editing? Uh, yes, they have. Um, they've changed in, in the ways that management looks at it. They they realize that you can get more in less time, and so they want more in less time with less pay. They would in, they're interested in having you do, for instance, uh, I started out editing things where you just stuck things with p- tape. You stuck 
And then you move to my first couple of digital platforms. I've gone through three digital platforms before the one that I finally worked on. But the digital platform that won out was the one that gave the most opportunities to make things in the editing room before you had to send it off somewhere else to be done, for instance. Uh, I, my job originally was to be a picture editor, and I would put things together, as, and the picture would be there, and the, and the dialogue would be pretty much the way you wanted it to be. But then when you could do work digitally, then you said, well, maybe we could put in a little bit of background music, and maybe then we could put in a little bit of background uh, sound effects. And then, oh, well, in, in order to round it out, let's make the titles. And so pretty soon producers were not able to view a movie like in the old days where you had lines drawn with uh, yellow pencil on it to show where a dissolve might be or whatever you fade out or fade in. All those things are just sketched in temporarily because in order to have them done, you had to send them to the laboratory and have them processed and brought back two days later. So this was all, the producers got to the point where they said, well, I want to see everything and I, wa I don't want any lines drawn on the picture. Show me the real picture. So mm. I didn't have one job. I had five. Yeah. I was a picture editor, a sound editor, a music editor, a title designer, etc. We're speaking with Harry Karamidis, the Hollywood film editor who's behind the Ashfield Film Festival in its 15th year this year, Friday and Saturday. A bunch of shorts that have been submitted by the people of Ashfield and beyond on Saturday night. Tickets still available? Tickets are available through Brown Paper Tickets uh, online, or you can go to our website and that will push you to Brown Paper Tickets. It also will be available at the hardware store in Ashfield. And if you're lucky, you can come to the door. We may have <laughs> some left at the door. When I watch, I've seen Back to the Future a million times. I, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Is there a scene in that movie, especially the first one, where you look at the editing that you did that you feel particularly proud, like that looks exactly the way I wanted it to look? Because I think a lot of people know these movies and maybe they can imagine this scene in their mind. Uh, I think that all of them, that I somehow got stuck with all, most of the action scenes. <laughs> and so the skateboard chase and uh, the dance and Marty doing the, all the things there on the floor. And I think that if I had to pick one, I would say that the dance and the whole the whole dance and Marty playing his guitar on the stage. and When he starts to vanish. Yes. I can even copy all the movements. And when the song comes back on and how he stands up right away. Yes, his exactly hand, I just right. did it in the studio. You couldn't see that. But yeah, <laughs> very well acted and edited. <laughs> <laughs> that's for radio. how he does it. <laughs> yeah, that's how he and, does it. And unfortunately, that's those like the first Back to the Future had. We only had about twenty six special effects. Uh huh. Movies wow. these <laughs> days have, you know, <laughs> multiple hundreds of special effects to make them happen. Sometimes every scene is touched up in some way or other. Yeah. But we, there was that dance scene is has the one special effect that we had to do over and over and at the very last minute had to settle for wor the worst it was his hand yeah. looking at his hand looks like yeah. somebody put a punch hole through his hand <laughs> and there was nothing we had no time left we had to take that that's all we had that was in in the parlance of special effects they always say it's a cbb could be better right uh -huh. well this one could be very better but it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> I'll never see that scene the same way again, but it worked for me all these years, Harry Karamidis. Well, it works when you watch it one time, but yeah. when you look at it over and over Don't again. analyze it. Don't analyze it. Just suspend your disbelief. That's what the magic of movies. There's a magic of movies, and I, I love Back to the Future, all three of the movies. And 
I enjoy working with the people that made the movie. And now my latest thrill was Back to the Future, the musical that Uh-oh. I got to see on Broadway. How was it? Oh, it was marvelous. Oh, I can't oh. wait. They, the DeLorean actually comes out over the audience. At Whoa. The end. It's just crazy. It's that crazy. is crazy. How is the music? I'm, oh. I'm reluctant to see it because I love Back to the Future so much. Well, the interesting thing about the music was it starts out, and you know they, they have to combine characters because it's yeah. in scenes right. and they can't do big outdoor stuff. So they combine certain things. And there's not the big clock sequence in the beginning where Marty's in there and, and he, he, all the clock and the dog food plops and the, he blows up with the speaker and stuff. Well, they just they couldn't do that. Yeah. And, so the, and then he goes skateboards off. They don't use the song. At the, at the beginning, oh. I said, "Well, that's kind of a miss," but at the end of the my musical, they bring that song in, and the audience jumps up and screams. They love <laughs> oh, it. Was a perfect <laughs> replacement, I'll say, for that mu- for that piece of music. Well, if the guy who edited the movies loves the musical version of Back to the Future so much, I've got to go see it, and maybe I'll invite. Representative Lauren Boebert to go with me because we all know she's a big fan of movies that have been turned into musicals. Yes, Maybe indeed. don't. Maybe don't take her. Uh, just don't let her vape. <laughs> Harry Karamidis, <laughs> the film editor behind Back to the Future, Children of the Corn, Judge Dredd, Chalk, which is a great film that uh, everybody should see but we don't have time to get into right now, and the person behind the Ashfield Film Festival. Tickets are still available. You can check all about the details and what's happening when on their website. Thank you so much for joining us today, Harry. You're welcome. Great pleasure to be here. (laughs) Wednesday on The Fabulous 413, more Hollywood meets Western Mass. We'll hear about how the actor's strike is impacting actors in the 413 when we talk with Sturbridge's Gary Galone, an actor from the award-winning films Coda and Spotlight and a union member with SAG. Plus a preview of what's opening at the UMass Museum of Contemporary Art and a look at our favorite acronyms with word nerd Emily Brewster from Merriam-Webster in Springfield. Special thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Apocalypse Bards, Thundercat, The Dip, Janelle Monet, The Cure, Huey Lewis and the News, and Alan Silvestri. Our director is Tony, becoming the purr in our last email done. Our engineers are Betsy, some inexplicable sign Lankto, who apparently now has us where she wants us. Phil, more Meeple's Bishop, Kara, to the scheduling foster, Bart, this is the fun part Rankin, and punk rude boy, sharp cheddar Dubay. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. See you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.